All right, let's go ahead and pray as we open up the word. Lord, we just thank you for today. Lord, we thank you that we celebrate the time of your birth. Whether this is the right time or not, we don't know, but we celebrate your coming. And Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be reading a section that most people skip over <laughs> uh, from the Bible. And you're, did anybody want to read all these names? <laughs> I'll read the names. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brothers. And Judas begat Pharaoh and Zeragog of Tamar. And Pharaoh begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Naasan, and Naasan begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rechah, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that was had been the wife of Uriah. And then we're going to skip down to verse 16 because we just get a long list of all the kings of, Ju of Judah. <laughs> and I want to get to verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So we're going to look at this genealogy. And I just want to kind of look at what can we learn from a genealogy. And those of you who have been around some of my studies know that I love these gene genealogies. They have all kinds of wonderful information. But I also remember a day when I was younger where I'd get to the genealogy, and I'd kind of glance through it, speed read through it, and get to the end of the list of names. <laughs> uh, so I remember if you're there, that's fine. Eventually you'll start seeing the excitement of some of these genealogies. But a couple of things I want to look about this genealogy. This is one of two genealogies for Jesus. This is traced through the line of Joseph, even though Joseph is not the human father of Jesus. They want to show that even through Joseph, we have the royal line. Now, he's like the 500th in the line or something. You know, he's, he's of the royal line, but he's not really part of that king. In Luke, Luke gives us Mary's lineage, and Mary goes through the line of David as well. Uh, now, she's even less you know, in the lesser group, because Jacob, we, uh, Joseph, if we read the whole thing, he goes through all the, the kings. You'd recognize their names. Uh, Mary's part of the sons that didn't get to be, be the king, so, but she is of David's line. And that's why Jesus was born of David's line as an ascendant of David. But a couple of things I want us to look at here is in verse 3 it says, And Judah begat Pharaoh and Zaire, of Tamar. Now, most of you may or may not know who Tamar is. All right? And so we're going to read, we're going to be reading all over today because I want to lay some history here and we're going to look at all these really special people that God put in Jesus' lineage. And uh, so in Genesis chapter 20, uh, 38, starting at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto your brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed for your brother. 
And Onan knew that the seed would not be his, and let it pass. And it came to pass that when he went into his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at your father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, per, Lest preadventure pre he die also, at his, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And it came to pass in the process of time that the daughter of Shua, Jacob's wife, died, or Judah's wife died. And Judah was comforted and went to the sheep shears in Timran, and he and his friend Hura and the Abdulamite, and it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, your father-in-law goes to Timnah to shear the sheep. And she put on her widow's, put on, on her widow's garments off her fur and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was by the way to Timnah. For she saw that Selah was grown and that she was not given to him as a wife. So Jacob saw her and thought that she was a harlot because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go, I pray you, let me come into you. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in? We're going to stop there because it goes into a long story about how he gives her a signet ring and a staff. She ends up getting pregnant from her father-in-law. Uh, and when he finds out that she's pregnant... As any father-in-law will get, he gets a little upset uh, that she has not been honorable and accuses her of adultery. Now, she then just shows him, you know, the father is the one that owns these things and shows him his own stuff. And he goes in and, and says, okay, you've been honorable because he was supposed to give her his third son. Now, he lost two sons. Yeah, you can almost understand him not wanting to give the last son to this woman in, in hopes that they, that, she, that they would not die. But he was performing, and this was the rules back in those days. If, if a man did not have a child from his wife and he died, a male heir, his brother was to go and have a baby with that woman, and that baby belonged to the dead father. All right? And so Onan knew that this was going to be the case. He was you know, given to Tamar, and if he had a baby, the first baby wasn't going to be his. It was going to go to his brother, and it said that he refused to finish the act in, in, in a very simple way. And yet we see Tamar is going to be in the line of Jesus. You know, God uses people that really most people would say, how could you use those people? Think about this. If you were going to be God and you were sending Jesus to the world, you know, he's the king's son. Where would you expect him to be born? The same place that the, the kings from the Orient came, the wise men from the Orient came. They went to the palace. Okay? The king obviously should be born in the palace. The only problem is Herod was not a Jewish king. He had been appointed by Rome. And so we see this whole process out there and God says, you know, I'm not looking. You know, I'm not putting Jesus in this rich person's home that have a gold, you know, silver spoon in his mouth from his earliest days. I'm going to put him in a family that is poor. How do we know that, that they were poor? Because on the eighth day, when they went to offer the sacrifice, they gave two turtle doves. 
That was the poor person's offering. You just went out, grabbed two turtle doves someplace, and, and made them an offering. Okay, it was a pretty simple offering. You didn't, you didn't have enough to give a sheep. You didn't have enough to give this, so they had the poor person's offering. The next one we look at as we go down this uh, story in verse 6, excuse me, 5. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rechab. Now, Rechab is also known as Rahab, the harlot of Jerusalem. Okay, Tamar played like a harlot, but was only making Judah do his fatherly duty for his son, because if the sons didn't do it, it fell to the father. If the father died, it would fall to one of the uncles. There was a whole long list of who was supposed to do it. So Tamar had the accusation of being a, a harlot. Rahab is a harlot. Okay, that's how she's described. The spies went to the house of Rahab the harlot in Jericho. Now, why they went to the house of Je the harlot in Jake Jericho, we don't know. Uh, I'm sure that it was not pure motives in their case. <laughs> uh, now, the Bible really doesn't tell us why they went there. It could be to get the gossip and everything that would have been there, but I think it was more than that. They wanted something, you know, they were, they were looking for more. That's speculation, but we don't know. But it went to the house of a harlot. And there's a lot of people who will try to say, well, that word can also mean innkeeper and everything, but don't, don't buy into that. It's, it, it, the word is harlot. <laughs> okay. Now, she probably did rent rooms out and all of that. But, you know. but the thing about her, if you remember, she hid the Jewish spies and said, you know, I have just one request of you. Remember me and my family when God gives you the city. Okay? He, she understood, more than the Jews seemed to understand, that they were going to conquer. It's kind of an interesting thing to me when the lost world understands God sometimes better than we do as Christians. The Jews did not have a great confidence that God was going to give them the land. Here they were outside a pretty big city, a strong, fortified city with walls that were, if I recall correctly, 25 feet thick. Now, that's a pretty good-sized wall when you don't have artillery pieces like we do. <laughs> okay? They could throw rocks at the, you know, they could make catapults and throw rocks against it, and a 25-foot wall is going to last a long time against rocks. And yet, Rahab is saying, we know your God is going to give you this city. She has more faith than the guys that are actually getting ready to take the territory. Why did she remember this? Because she remembered 40 years earlier that God had taken the Israelites out of Egypt and had destroyed Egypt. You know, we talk about this. During the 10 plagues in Egypt, God destroyed Egypt. All right? He destroyed their agriculture. He destroyed the fish in the river when he turned the river to blood. He did all kinds of, th he beat all the gods, and then he took the people out, and the army of Pharaoh decided to chase them. And remember, they, as they're crossing the Red Sea, the army of Pharaoh gets wiped out. Egypt became defenseless, economically poor for a period of time. Rahab remembers. She's going to them, 
We, we, we know what God did to Egypt. We are quaking in our boots. And yes, God honored that request. She said, please save my life. Her life was saved. And we find her name in the list of people of Jesus' birth. And it's quite an interesting, interesting thing when we look at it. The next name in this same verse is, And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Now, Ruth is a very righteous woman. Okay? She loves God with all of her heart, but she has one big problem. She's a Moabitist. <laughs> all right? Uh, a Moabitist. This is one of the children. She's of the descendants of Lot's insensual relationship with his daughter. Remember Lot, when they get leave Sodom and Gomorrah, they go out and they're leaving. Lot's wife becomes a pillar of salt because she looks back. The people, he, Lot gets up into the mountains with just him and his daughters. They decide, well, our father's never coming off this mountain. If we don't have children, we're never going to have children. They get him drunk, and they each, have a, they each have a child. Well, one of them, the oldest one, ends up with the children of Moab. Now, Moab has a quite an interesting, interesting time with the Jewish people. They go out and when the children of Israel are asking to go through the land, they're told, no, you can't go through our land. The king Balak, he hires Balaam to curse Israel. Balaam doesn't, doesn't curse Israel. If you remember Balaam, he's the one that the donkey talked to him. Another one of those people that have somebody that's really you know, useful. I mean, how, if God can use a donkey, he can use any of us. Okay. Uh, now, and I've always been amazed that Balaam holds a conversation with a donkey. Okay? If I was going along and, and one of the, my animals talked to me in words that I could understand, I would be freaked out. I would not be having a conversation with that animal. Balaam has a whole conversation with the animal like it happened every day. Now, um, but he goes and he won't curse the people but if you remember, he went to Balak and said, I can tell you how to get the people to disobey their God so that their God will curse them. And he says, send in the ladies to seduce their men and get them to worship the idols. And the ladies of Moab went in, seduced the men, got them into worshiping the idols, and God sent serpents to in there to kill them. So we see God keeping his people, but we have this Moabitess. Now in Deuteronomy, there's a curse upon the Moabites in Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 through 4. He that is wounded in the stone or hath his... Oops. Up verse 3, excuse me. The Ammonite or the Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. They shall not enter into the congress of the Lord forever, because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, of Bithor, of Mesopotamia, to curse you. And this was Ruth. <laughs> you know, Ruth the Moabitess. Shouldn't have had anything to do with this whole line of God. And yet, a Moabitist, a person who is cursed, is part of his line. 
Now, she's a righteous, very righteous woman. If you read the story of Ruth, it's a beautiful story of her turning away from her idols, turning to God, staying with, with Naomi, providing for Naomi, never planning ever to get married again. She, when she left her place, it was, because Naomi, remember, told her, when you, you know, why would you come to me? I'm so old, I'll never have any more children. They're, you know, they're, and even if I did, even if I, God gave me a child today, are you going to wait for this guy to grow up? All right? Uh, so you figure, okay, yeah, let's say she's even really young, 15. You know, are you going to wait till you're 30 and marry a teenager? <laughs> is what she's telling her. Uh, you know, so when she leaves, she says, no, I'm just going to follow your God. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my God. Where you go, I will go. And, you know, cursed it will be I if anything but death keeps me from you. And this is, she's really righteous. She's the only righteous of the three women listed in here. You know, uh, the last one is the most famous everybody knows. Uh, very much on, on this one. Verse 6, And Jesse begat David the king, and David begat the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. So here we have another adulteress. Okay, so we have a person who appears to be a harlot. We have a harlot. We have a Moabitess. And then we have an adulterer. You know, it's kind of interesting what's going on in this, this section. And we're not going to go into the story of David and Bathsheba because we all know that, you know, pretty much know that story. David Caesar, he's, he's not where he belongs because that verse that starts out in Second, Second Samuel says, In the day that the kings go out to battle, David stayed at the palace. David was not where he was supposed to be and ended up doing things he was not supposed to do which is a whole other lesson we're not going to get into, but beware of being in the wrong place because usually it leads to wrong actions. And so he has this adulterous affair, and she's listed in the lineage of Jesus. Now, one thing about the lineage is if you read these gene genealogies, women are very rarely, if ever, named in a genealogy. This is a very rare thing that, that Matthew is doing. He's putting women in this genealogy. Now, it's very rare to find women named in the Bible. <laughs> you know, and why? Well, because in the Jews' mind, women were nothing. Okay? In the Jewish people of that day, a woman was good for one thing, and that was to give you your son. <laughs> that really is what they looked at them for. Uh, you know, and to have some pleasure once in a while. But really just to have a son. You know, and We've talked about this, you know, when Mary went and the two Marys and them went to the garden tomb and they saw Jesus, one of the proofs that it's a true statement that, that they're writing about is because a Jew would never have taken the testimony of a woman and wrote about accepting that testimony. In their day, a woman could not go to court and be the, wit the eyewitness to a crime. She couldn't do it. So you could get away with anything as long as you did it in front of a woman. Okay, and we laugh about that, and it is sad, but it was true. Here, Matthew is putting women, and not women of great reputation. You'd figure, if he's putting women in here, he'd talk about Sarah, okay, the, the mother of all the Jewish people. He'd talk about Rebecca, 
You know, he'd talk about the righteous women that, that the Bible talks about. No, he talks about these ones that have bad reputations that are sinners. Now, the question is, why would he do something of that? And I believe part of it is for him to show us God's grace. You know, one of the things that is so wonderful in the scripture is God shows the weaknesses of his, of his people. He shows how far that they've come so that they can show his grace. You know, in, the, in the scriptures, it tells us, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace has always been part of God's plan. A lot of people look at the Old Testament and say, well, it's nothing but a whole bunch of laws. Now, you know what? I see so much grace in the Old Testament, it's not even funny. Adam and Eve sinned. They die. They, God said, the day you eat of the, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Now, they did die that day. They died spiritually. And they started dying physically. But God's grace was that they were allowed to live and produce these children. And God made the first sacrifice for them. He gave them coats of skin. He shed the blood. He showed them what it cost for sin. God's grace. Jesus' line is filled with people who do not deserve to be there. And we need to go through all the list of kings who don't deserve to be part of that line. Okay, Most of the kings in David's line were evil, wicked men. At least half of them. So we're not even getting into that part of it. You know, God's grace. Again, you would think that if God was going to send Jesus, he would go, okay, here's a good man, a whole long line of good men. But you know what God uses us for to show us his grace? How many people would ever get saved if all they saw were practically perfect people? They go, and I've heard this, you know, well, I can't live the way these Christians live. Well, if you knew this person, you wouldn't be saying that in the first place because you'd know their sins. But, you know, we need to be very careful about the projection that we give to other people. None of us is perfect. You know, in the book of James, it says, if you say you're perfect, you're lying. So none of us are perfect. We need to keep this in mind that people need to see that imperfection. They need to see the grace that God gives. God gives grace. And grace is getting everything we don't deserve. There's not a one of us that deserves eternal life. There's not a one of us that deserves even the relationship with God. What do we deserve? We deserve to be in hell. You know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You know, we all have sinned. We've all come short of God's glory. This lessons from the genealogy is that God uses weak people. He uses people that are sinners. He uses people that need him. If he didn't, we'd all be in trouble because God wouldn't use any of us. And here we see the picture of it. What does God use? He uses each one of us. Some are more imperfect than others, but all of us are imperfect. God's standard is not this curve. You know, most people like to say, well, you know, God, I'm pretty good. I'm better than most people I know. Well, that's pretty good. But who do you compare yourself to is the question. Now, I've shared with you, out of the prison, most of the guys in the, in the prison think they're pretty good. You know what? I'm better than a lot of the other guys here. I'm better than most of the guys here. I hear that a lot. 
I go, well, that's pretty good. You're better than a lot of other prisoners. I'm really happy for you. Okay. But you know, even on the outside, we do that same thing. You know, how many people will look at a Mother Teresa when they're saying, I'm, get, you know, I'm better than somebody? You know, how many people look at the people that are really good? No, those aren't the ones we look at because they make us look bad. <laughs> we don't look at them. You know, the thing about it is God comparison is, how do you compare to him? You know, none of us compare to him. None. And yet, God desires to use us. This is the wonderful news. Jesus died on the cross so the Father could declare us perfect. And then he starts using us. What a wonderful thing. I encourage us all to read the different biographies we have in the library. And you see these guys, and it's so interesting, whether it's the guys or the girls, you see these really bizarre stories of when they, before they became a Christian. You know, manipulators, liars, cheats, you know, uh, whatever it might be, and then they get saved and God changes them. God wants to change us. He wants to use us. Our goal, are we going to let him? Are we going to let God change us? You know, one of the marks of being, being a Christian is that God is changing your life. And I've said this so many times, if you can't point to something that God has changed in your life when you got saved, you need to really look and say, God, am I one of your children? Okay, because when we are saved, we become a new creation in Christ. Now, it may be something small that he changed. It may be something big, but there needs to be a change in your life when, you're, when you become a Christian. And then, as you're following him, as you're getting to know him, you're going to make more and more changes, or he's going to make more and more changes. And after years or decades of walking with him, you end up with a more righteous life. Not because you're doing it. Not because you're even trying to do it. Because God is changing who you are. And then we go through and, and it brings us to this is Jesus' lineage. Jesus was not given to a rich family. He was not given to the palace. He was not given a silver spoon. His life was a tough one. Mary is listed in this as the other, as the last of the women. And, you know, Mary has a problem, too. She has a child before she is officially consummated her wedding. And the people seem to know this because when they're accusing Jesus in, uh, later on in his life in John 8, 41, they say, well, we know who our father is. We, we were not born of fornication. In other words, Mary... You, you, were, you were laying around. You committed adultery too. This was the reputation that Mary had all of her days. This was a righteous young lady who was wanting to follow God all of her life. And the accusation against her was, you're just, you were a loose woman. You were sleeping around before you, before you, had, before you were married. And that was the reputation. That's the reputation that she had out there. Obviously, they did not believe that she was a virgin impregnated by God, and neither would anybody else for that matter. We've talked about that. You know, if you had a daughter and she came home and said, you know, hey, God, God impregnated me, you're going to go, yeah, right. Who have you been, you know, what have you been doing, you know, each night? Yeah. And could you imagine Mary having to tell her mother and father, you know, uh, by the way, I'm pregnant. 
you know, well, what have you and Joseph been doing? Or you got somebody else on the side. You know, it's going to be their very first thought. And we know that that would be their first thought because that would be our thought. You know, and she had a bad reputation. So every woman listed in here has a bad reputation, two of which are not deserved. Maybe Tamar may or may not be. <laughs> uh, but, you know, are we willing to follow God and be changed by him? What is, what is our goal before God? Are we going to follow him? Are we going to allow him to change us? God wants to use each one of us. Sometimes I'll talk to people and invite them to church, and I'll hear things, well, you know, I can't go into church. The roof will fall in. Well, you need to really change your opinion about God. God loves you. And that's exactly what I tell them. God loves you so much that he, he is not going to let that happen. He loves you. Well, you know, if you knew the things I did, God, you wouldn't say God loves me. The one thing I know is God loves you. He says he does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So if you're part of the world, God loves you. And so far, I have never met a human being walking on two feet that aren't part of the world. Now, there might be one somewhere out there somewhere, but I've never met one, and I don't think I will ever meet one. I know there aren't any out there. Okay? Every single person out there is part of the world that God loves. No matter what they've done or no matter what they have not done, God loves them. One of our greatest messages that we can give people is that God loves them. And say, God loves you. You know, John 3.16 is a great way to witness to people that, on that. You know, for God so loved the world, are you, you, know, you might even stop. Are you part of the world? You know, uh, and unless they're lying to you, they're going to say yes. That God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. How do we believe? We put our full trust in Jesus. This is what belief is all about. Belief is not just saying, I believe there was a Jesus. We're told that the devils believe that there's a Jesus. They're not going to heaven. But do we believe that he is our only way to heaven? I've met people that say, well, I'm believing in Jesus, but I'm also going to go and, and do these other religions as well. No, then you don't believe in Jesus. When you believe, you forsake all other ways, all other possibilities. Well, I believe that Jesus is the way to heaven, but I'm going to do all these good works just in case. You don't believe in Jesus. You know, we want to be careful. What is it that we do? We believe. And we want to challenge, during especially this time of year, it is easy to tell people about Jesus. You know, we're supposedly celebrating his birth, and everybody kind of knows that. Now, they may try to him and haw, well, you know, it's not Christmas, it's winter, winter holidays or happy holidays or whatever it is. But you know what? Everybody out there knows that we are really celebrating the birth of Jesus. They may or may not like that, but they know that that's what we're doing. And, you know, we want to keep this in mind. Let's lift up Jesus. This is the time to lift up Jesus. You go to all the stores, they're all playing Christmas carols. And every once in a while, you hear a real Christmas carol. <laughs> okay? Not, not the Christmassy garbage songs that are out there. But you hear a real Christmas carol that presents Christ. Let's use this opportunity to share people. It's an easy time to share with people. Get some tracks, hand them out if you're afraid to talk to people. But let's tell people, you know, Merry Christmas. You know, let's put Christ in front of them so that they'll know. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have.
to live by your grace. Lord, for anybody that's listening to this that doesn't know you, we ask that today will be their day to come to you and, and commit their life to you. Live in your grace and follow you. Lord, for each one of us, we ask that you give us the boldness to go out and share. You give us the boldness of lift you up. Lord, we just thank you for that. Lord, for anybody here that needs a healing, we lift up the, your healing hand and ask you to touch their bodies and help them to be healed. And we just thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.